Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. I originally wanted to talk to Mike Slade about Starwave, that innovative company that launched some of the major names onto the web, including ESPN.com, ABCNews.com, Mr. Showbiz, and others. And after an eventual sale to Disney, put together the pieces that would become the Go.com portal play. But Mike is one of those guys who has had such a varied and interesting career, I couldn't help but go into other areas. I mean, (laughs) the dude worked at Microsoft in the early 1980s, he worked at Next in the early 90s, and from 1998 through 2004, he was special assistant to Steve Jobs as Jobs came in and first saved Apple as a company, but then launched the iPod, and kicked into motion the modern gadget era as we know it. So we'll get into all of that in this excellent, wide-ranging conversation with Mike Slade, CEO of Starwave. Mike Slade, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Uh, My pleasure. So I usually on the show ask questions like, what was it like to uh, go to work at Google in 2000 or, or Facebook in 2005? But let's start with you by asking, what, what was it like to uh, go to work for Microsoft in, what was it, 1983? Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I was going to Stanford Business School and I didn't, I, and when I went up there to interview, I didn't really know what they did. Um, at the time, they were private and Lotus and Ashton Tate were public and um all they mostly made were languages and operating systems and compilers and flight simulator and multiplan was a also ran spreadsheet and word hadn't shipped yet. And the Mac hadn't shipped yet. And no one really knew what they were. So I went up there for an interview. I was from the Northwest and I really wanted to live in the Northwest. And so I interviewed at Nike and I wasn't a world-class runner, so they didn't hire me. And even though Phil Knight was a Stanford MBA. And then I went to interview at Microsoft and, um, Lo and behold, they made me a job offer, and I took it. And I didn't really—I have to say—I'm not being facetious. I didn't really know what they did when I got there. I mean, I'm not being—I'm not kidding. I didn't really know. People say, "What do they do?" And I go, uh, "Software." <laughs> so, it's just, really now. can I intuit from that that you maybe weren't uh, like a, a big-time computer guy at this point? You know, I wasn't a programmer. I had mm-hmm. worked. What had happened to me was I had gone to college. I'd been an economics major. And while I was in college, I was a sports writer for a daily newspaper. First, I was the sports editor of the college paper. And while I worked there, it went digital. So it was one of the first papers in the country to go digital, which meant that I was manipulating uh, the entire AP wire on a screen, a mini computer-based screen in 1978, helping the sports editor lay the paper out and write mm-hmm. stories. So not many people were doing that then, like maybe a few hundred in the whole United States. So um, the Colorado Springs Gazette was, I think, the sixth paper in the country to go digital. Everybody else had typewriters still and manual typesetting machines. And so I was pretty facile with using a computer, if you will. I wasn't a programmer, but I understood like how to use things like Emacs. And so when I was in Stanford Business School, 
I was famous because I knew how to write on a computer, not a micro, not a, they had a mini computer system that everyone used. And I could, so I was the designated paper writer. Everyone loved me because I, we didn't have to type papers. I could edit them on a word processing program. So I was computer facile, if you know what I mean. Um, and I loved technology and I loved computers and people liked that. And at Microsoft, they liked that. So yeah, when I got there, I was not a programmer. And this guy, Pete Higgins, who's now my venture capital business partner, he and I were kind of the first virgin MBAs Microsoft ever hired, you know, guys who weren't techni- technical, hadn't worked in the industry, or just were hired kind of like Procter & Gamble hired product managers. Oh, wow. We were the first. Wow. So, so we showed up, yeah, in 1983. Right. And so uh, Microsoft, um, 400 people, maybe. Right. So it's still a small company. So this is them maybe trying to trying to grow up and become a big boy company at this point, maybe? Well, Steve Ballmer was the guy who hired everybody. He was also a Stanford MBA. So, although he had dropped out famously to go to work for Microsoft. So, um, he was interviewing Stanford MBAs and the year before three people had been offered jobs and they'd all turned him down, believe it or not. And so Pete and I were his prizes because we actually said yes. So we came there and another guy from Wharton came there. We were kind of their first sort of MBA pledge class, you know, like Procter and Gamble and other people have, and General Mills have, you know, Whole, they used to have whole groups of MBAs or, or consulting firms. And we were the only guys in our class who did anything like that. Most people either went to work for, you know, the 300 people in our graduating class at Stanford Business School, and most of them either went to work for consulting firms or investment banks or consumer products companies like Frito-Lay or something, So, or General Mills. Nobody did what we did. So we, we were considered weird. When it, another funny thing was that a guy who was one of Pete's best friends he went to work for Digital Research, which was kind of Microsoft's rival then. Right. And they were in Santa Cruz, and or actually Pacific Grove, which is a suburb of Santa Cruz. And both Pete and I kind of thought that, like, maybe he'd, he'd done better than us because it was such a fun place to live, right? <laughs> Little did we know they were doomed, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, so um, I went there, and the story I like to tell people is I got there on a Friday night of Labor Day weekend, fresh from my honeymoon in Europe, and... Um, so it was Friday night of Labor Day weekend, and I was had this complicated plan to spend the night at a hotel across the street from Microsoft in Bellevue and then go to Portland for the weekend where I was from and get organized and come to work after Labor Day weekend. So I got to the hotel, which is across the street from the old Microsoft building, at 11.30 on a Friday night of Labor Day weekend, and they didn't. there was no reservation for me. No one knew who I was, and I was kind of confused. So I just – I didn't really know what to do. I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have any money, and so I went across the street – to the Microsoft building that I'd been to one time before. And in the basement, there was a phone. And it was one of those phones that rang in the whole building, you know, in the old days, those kinds of phones. Mm-hmm. They were called a night bell. So I pick up the phone at 11.30 on Friday night of a later day weekend. And the phone rings like 20 times. And Jeff Rakes, who later was my boss at Microsoft, answers the phone at 11.30 on Friday night of Labor Day weekend. And I go, Jeff, it's Mike. I'm back from my honeymoon, blah, 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 blah. And he interrupts me and he goes, I'm in a meeting. What do you need? Because <laughs> they're all. And working. I go. And Friday night of Labor Day, at eleven thirty, and they were about to launch Word 1.0. That's why they were working so hard. And I was like, he was like, just, just, you know, we'll pay you back. Go get the room, get out of here. So I tell my wife, I'm like, we're in big trouble here. <laughs> people work really hard. You know, so I, what it was like was a, a place where people worked really, really, really hard. Yeah, let me expand on that a little bit um, uh, before we move on to other things. When you, you know, you still work with with startups today, and yeah, do you yeah. see the the same DNA fundamentally in how things worked back then with how things work today, or or is there are there significant differences from era to era that that you've been able to see? 
Well, it's hard to compare because you couldn't get any work done then unless you came to the office. Hmm. You know, remember, there was no Internet, and if you were going to connect to a computer remotely, you were going to do it on a 2400 baud modem in 1983, right? So uh, there was no such thing as high-speed connections. Now, Bill Gates, even in those days at Microsoft, had a T1 line to his house, but that's because he was Bill Gates, right? Nobody else did. So if you wanted to do any work, whether it was email or writing something or programming, you had to go to work. You had to be in the office. So it's a really different vibe than now where you can work whenever you want. You can go to Starbucks. Nobody really cares. You know, as long as you get your work done, they don't really care. You know, and so then – and people are always on now. They have smartphones and everything. So you just can only imagine. Ballmer and Gates used to walk the halls at night on weeknights to see who was working when. And on Saturdays, Steve would walk the parking lot to see whose car was in the parking lot, see who was working. Mm-hmm. And your bonus – was about 50% what you did and 50% how hard you worked. So if you were a complete screw-up, but you worked really hard, they gave you a pretty good bonus. <laughs> because it worked Because <laughs> it was kind of like a factory, right? That, yeah. His whole thing was the software factory. So that was the thing, was that, you know, you were kind of, Microsoft was going to have these tools, and unlike their competitors, they had a really strong approach to their tools philosophy, and they were going to have better tools than anybody else. Their programmers would be more efficient. So, um, so it's a very strange atmosphere. So I don't know if it's the same now or not. It's kind of hard to compare because people still work really hard, but it's just different. Like you talk to people who work at Amazon here in Seattle, and they say it's a meeting culture and that you've got to be there all the time. So they, and that, that would be similar in some respects. Other companies aren't really like that. When I ran my company, I didn't care when you worked as long as you worked hard. So when um, uh, to 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 put a little bit of a bow on the Microsoft era, I'm sure you wore many hats. You know, I I see that you you know you worked on Flight Simulator, Excel when Excel launches. Uh, um, yeah, I launched Excel. Right. right. So what, what just in general uh, what was your was your main role at, at Microsoft? Oh, I was a product marketing guy, and yeah. um, there the, Pete and I, like I said, were kind of the first crop of product marketing guys who 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 were supposed to be kind of in the mold of what people did at General Mills or Procter & Gamble, where we were kind of the bridge between the consumer, sales, and the developers. Because before that, there really wasn't one. And in most companies, there isn't one. And what Microsoft had was a pretty strong, because of Jeff Rakes and Bill's vision, they had a really strong product management organization early on that you were kind of the advocate inside the company to get stuff done and to get resources assigned to your product instead of somebody else's product. And uh, so it was kind of a weird mixture of detail-oriented and sales, internal sales, if you will. And then you were the external ambassador for the product, whatever whatever product that was. So um, that's all I did. I was a marketing guy. I did Excel. I did Works. I was in charge of all the Mac products. I was for a while. I had the unenviable job for like two years of being kind of Microsoft's ambassador to Apple because in those days, Windows didn't really exist, or if it did, it was lousy. And so almost all the application sales Microsoft had were either PC, Word, or Mac products. And so, because there really wasn't Windows yet. So, like like I introduced Office in 1989 in the Mac, and it didn't come out on Windows for two more years because there really wasn't a good enough version of Windows and enough the Office apps weren't really done right to do it yet. There was no PowerPoint on Windows, et cetera. So it's kind of, it was an important job. It was kind of a funny job because Microsoft and Apple kind of loved and hated each other all at the same time. Apple was suing Microsoft, and yet we had way more revenue off Mac products than PC products, particularly in the U.S. So it's kind of a funny deal. Um, but so I was a marketing guy. 
Well, uh, I'm sorry, but I can't resist. But so what you're talking about is you're talking about the era, and you're talking about working with applications, and you're talking about the era where um, Microsoft rises to the top of, of the, the application heap, and, and things like Office and, become and, eventually. And they did the that via the Mac. People don't realize that the reason Windows Office and Windows were so successful was because Microsoft got a head start on all of its competitors doing apps for a graphical user interface system because they were so early and so successful on the Mac. So we had this, this, this mandate from Bill Gates that we would make $100 in revenue every time a Mac got sold. And Apple used to tell us, we used to exchange secret information with Apple where we would tell them, they would tell us how many units they shipped that month and we would tell them how many units of Excel and Word we shipped that month. And this guy at Apple named Matt Cobb, who I went to business school with, he and I would call each other up once a month and have this secret powwow. And that that how's up? <laughs> yes, how's up for a while? Yeah, <laughs> right. Because it, you know the legend is is that you guys were always at each other's throats. Well, that was true also, and you know Windows certainly bears an eerie eerie similarity to the Mac, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, uh, you know that's all true. <laughs> But um, nonetheless, uh, our futures were intertwined. You know, when I introduced Excel, we were competing with Lotus, and one of the things that was funny about it was that I'm a really nice guy, and by that I mean just compared to most people I know, I'm considered a fun, nice, amiable guy. And the guy at Lotus was a little more standoffish. And so the Apple guys really liked me because I was so nice and also because they considered the Mac a baby platform, the guys at Lotus versus 123 and the PC, Lotus 123, which is the preeminent product of the of the, the mid-80s. And so what happened was that I would tell people that Excel on a Mac was better than Lotus 123 and a PC, and nobody at Lotus would do that. And so it, it, it blew the Apple guys away, and they realized that they had something that, that they could use you know, to sell their businesses. One of the other things people forget about this era was that there was very little market for consumers buying PCs and software. It's mostly businesses. I mean, there was people that did hobbyist stuff on their PC, but because there was no, the exception of like CompuServe and this weird stuff, there really wasn't a reason, or using Quicken to write down all your checks that you wrote, there wasn't much of a reason to use a PC at home. Recipes, games, you know, it was still kind of a hobbyist thing. So mostly what you were doing in those days was selling to businesses, not to consumers. So you mentioned... Almost all. Right. You mentioned that uh, that towards the end, especially, you're um, basically the the main point person uh, f- with Apple for for the Macintosh line. So, is that is it because of that that you end up at Next um, at around around 1991? I guess. Kind of. What happened is I was I introduced Excel, and then right after, right yeah, in between the time we announced it. In, and the time that we shipped it, Steve Jobs was famously deposed by John Scully at Apple. That's in the summer of 1985, for those of you who care. And so Steve sulked for a while and then went off to start Next. And when he started Next, he was very secretive about it. And then a couple of years later, when he launched the thing, it didn't work for well. He started looking for someone good to run marketing because he had lousy marketing. So he tried to hire me a bunch of times because he knew I'd done such a good job on Excel. Um, to, and I only met him a couple times, uh, to, um, to run marketing at Next. And I turned him down a couple times, and then finally I left and did it. So I kind of did it, you know, when I was at Microsoft, I went from 400 people to 8,000, 8,500 people. And most people thought it was great and wanted to stay there forever. And I didn't really like it that much. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, people were sort of aggressively negative about 
each other. It was really political. It seemed like a big company to me. I wanted to be in a smaller environment. So I was kind of happy to leave. And so what I did was I went to work for Steve as kind of a bigger fish in a smaller pond, if you will, which was really fun. I'm really glad I did it. And we became really good friends because I, you know, Next was in, in trouble and trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, he and I just thought the same way. So it was really a fun deal. I'm glad I did it. It was an odd thing to do. People at Microsoft just thought I was weird. No one was leaving Microsoft in those days. But I just, it wasn't really for me. The, the, its environment was just different than kind of what the way I'm cut. So I did that. And then um, later, uh, after I ran my internet company and sold it, uh, I went to work for Steve again. Yeah, well, well, when he was back turning into that. But I'll, we'll get to that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll touch on that, that towards yeah, the end. Um, yeah. I just want to, 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 I saw on your on your LinkedIn profile, the only thing you have for next is you say it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. So like as, well, you're, so, as it's a struggle, well, it's a struggle, right? But it's also, it was more fun is what you're saying? Yeah, well, you know, nothing wrong with a Dickens quote in there. But yeah, so mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is, is that we were a small company competing with both Microsoft and Sun and also PC companies because we were selling expensive workstations to big big companies and to education and stuff. So you were in kind of the major leagues, but we were kind of the smallest company in that environment. So it was kind of a mixed bag in terms of, you know, what resources you had and how much scale you could get to and all that stuff. Um, so I was if I was, if I felt underemployed at Microsoft, I felt overemployed at Next. Let's put it that way. You know, the first month I was in there, I was in meetings with Michael Dell and Andy Grove of Intel. You know, Steve would just drag me everywhere. You know, I did everything with Steve, and so I I got to do great things. However, Next was almost out of money, like five times. It was really a crazy time, uh, and a lot of uh, decisions. Some decisions that Steve made were terrible. Um, you know, there's a really good book about the Steve Jobs at Next called Becoming Steve Jobs, yeah. which was written by Brent Schlender, which I highly recommend for people because it's, uh, in addition to having fabulous quotes from me and Bill Gates all over it, <laughs> it um, it's it's just really accurate. You know, Brent Schlender knew Steve really well, and the Walter Isaacson book, which everyone kind of read and they made that shitty movie out of, um, doesn't really talk about how and why Steve changed. It's more of a breath, breathless highlight film. And so if you want to understand Steve, what was going on with them? It's better to read that book. That's a really good book. I highly, That's highly, very personal. highly recommend that one. Also, over, over, yeah. <laughs> over the Isaacson book. Um, yeah, and so, I mean, in sorry. Walter's defense, it's hard to write a book when a guy's dying and you're talking to him all the time. So I, he didn't do anything wrong. It's just right. hard to get it right. You know? um, so I believe that you're at next from like '91 and '93. So I'm trying about to, two years, right? So I, I, I so want to. Ha- here's what happened. Sure. They were about to go out of the hardware business. They, for various reasons their chip strategy was, they got kind of screwed over by Apple and IBM forming an alliance. And so they had to eventually get out of the hardware business. And when I left uh, Next to go back to Seattle, I told Steve this was going to happen. And I also told him that the guy he had hired to be the COO at Next, who was a guy named Peter Van Kylenberg, was kind of bad news, that he was lying to Steve and lying to us and that it wasn't going to end well. And Steve was really mad at me. And then within three months, I told him like five things and all of them came true within like three months, just as it happened, not because I'm a genius. And so it was kind of amazing that this happened. And so he did something he'd probably never done in his whole life, but he called me up and apologized, uh, which was a landmark moment. And so he apologized to me and it kind of, even though I'd already left, come back to Seattle, it kind of cemented our friendship in this weird way because 
I had told him all this stuff, not out of spite or malice, which is what he thought, just because it was gonna, it was true. And so that really changed our friendship in a, a major way. And he became a smallish software company that sold tools to big companies. And then when the internet came along, they sold some tools to enable e-commerce and then eventually Apple bottom. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. 1Password. 1Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. 1Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. 1Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. So I, I hope, yeah. if uh, time permitting, that we w- we will come back to, to that Apple story. Um, uh, yeah, I will definitely come back. Okay. I know a lot about it. But, so yeah. the uh, I, I was framing the, the year uh, 1993-ish because um, we're going to get into Starwave here, um, but I should point out that in 1993, the web exists, but it isn't a thing yet. So if you could... It, it, it doesn't really exist. I mean, it, right. it exists. So, so I knew about it because the guy, Tim Berners-Lee, who basically invented the World Wide Web, he invented it on Next Machines at this research institute in Switzerland. So... You know, we all knew about it, and Next had lots of educational customers. To give you a, a perspective on it, in 1991, when I left Microsoft to go to work for Next, I got a business card that said VP of Marketing on it, and it said, it said Mike Slay, and it had the address, it had the fax number, it had the mailing address, and then it said Mike Slade at Next.com. And I was like, what is this app sign? I'd never seen it before. And no business cards in the world had those on it, but because Next had 
educational customers, everybody emailed each other inside and outside of the company. So at Microsoft in 1990 and 1991, you couldn't email people unless they worked at Microsoft. Right, because they, they, didn't want, they were afraid of viruses and things like that, so they didn't want an outside connection? No, it was just simply wasn't done. It was just it an be like intranet. Saying, yeah. It would like having a sat phone or calling the moon. It just wasn't mm-hmm. done. It didn't occur to anybody. Nobody did at any company. So I was like, wow, this is really internet-y. And we had an FTP program for downloading pictures. And I got there, and a guy showed me how to download dirty pictures on my next machine in black and white. And I'm like, how are you doing that? And he was going – he was using this thing called Gopher to connect to the University of Minnesota server. And I'm like – Really, you're talking to a computer at a different place. How are you doing that? Like, it it just didn't occur to people unless it was some big corporate network, you know, where you connected buildings or something. So, uh, next is where we all learned about the notion of two computers talking to each other in different companies or different places, if you will, right? Not inside of a corporate network. Mm-hmm. So when I left next um, and came back to work for Paul Allen. This was when AOL was starting to get really big and when CompuServe and Prodigy were starting to fade because AOL was a lot more easy to use than those services were. They were pretty geeky and text-based. So Paul Allen, who had been a co-founder of Microsoft and who I had gotten to know because he bought my beloved Portland Trailblazers, he had this idea in 1993 called the Wired World. And he said the world was going to be connected someday, which was correct, and that we should do something about it. And so he tried to buy AOL. He almost bought it, and then he backed off. He owned 26% of it at one point, and then he sold it. He was a billionaire back when there weren't many billionaires. I mean, there really weren't many billionaires at all. Right? Now there are lots of them. Right. And he said to me, you come work for me in Seattle, and I'll, we can look at cool stuff that is on this general theme of a multimedia wired world, which would be the internet today, but nobody knew that then. Well, because this was also, this was the era of everyone trying interactive TV and the information superhighway is the next big thing. Yeah, I'll get to that. That's exactly right. And so he said all that, and he said, why don't you find something? If you find something you're excited about, and I'm excited about, you run it, and I'll fund it. I'll give you some upside. So I shook his hand and moved to Seattle. No contract, nothing. So as you point out, in early 1993, Sun and Silicon Graphics and Microsoft and all these other people were screwing around with what was called interactive TV. And there was this trial that was going on in Orlando, Florida, where Time Warner had a cable system there. And they were going to do this really fancy schmancy interactive TV trial. And SGI beat out Sun for the right to do it. and it was the money doing full it. service network. Exactly. And it was a disaster. It was, you know, and all the demos were, you know, you're sitting on your TV watching a show and then you click on the jeans and buy them or, you know, a phone call comes in. A lot of the scenarios are actually the scenarios you see in Back to the Future 2. If you watch, (laughs) it's a shitty movie, but if you watch Back to the Future 2, a lot of these scenarios are in that movie of like phone calls on your TV and stuff like that. And they got it completely wrong because everybody thought that TV was what it was, where it was at, even though the TV is a closed system, doesn't have a keyboard, et cetera, et cetera, and your computer is a very versatile system, right? <laughs> so everybody got it wrong, but never mind that. So while they all got it wrong, people were screwing around with the Internet. And so I didn't really know whether AOL would be the most popular service. Microsoft was going to introduce a competitor to it called MSN, 
or whether the web would be popular or whatever. No one, no one really thought the internet would be popular. It needed a high-speed connection, and you had a 14.4 modem maybe, and it needed a TCP IP stack on your computer. And Windows didn't have that. You had to go download it separately, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I sat in this room with Paul, and I said, regardless of platform, here are 10 ideas. And we brainstormed all day long. Some were his ideas, some were mine. And of the 10 ideas – Nine were marginal or obvious, and one was really good. And the one that was really good was doing the world's biggest sports section. Hmm. Because I'd been a sports writer. He was a sports nut. I would argue I'm even more of a sports nut than he is, but it's, a, it's close. And, um, uh, and so he loved that idea, and we did a bunch of things at Starway. We did CD-ROM titles, which were kind of like websites before there were websites on, delivered on a disc with Clint Eastwood, with Peter Gabriel, with Sting, with the Muppets. We did some interactive TV prototyping, and we did a whole bunch of online service prototypes. We did a sports one, we did a news service one, an entertainment one, a family one. And the sports one was obviously the cool one. And over time, we spent all of our energy and all of our time on this thing. And so we built a team of about 150 people in 1993 and 1994 building all the back-end stuff to deliver a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week interactive sports service. And so that meant writing your own publishing system, writing your own web server, writing your own ad server, writing your own multimedia server, video server. We did all the stuff that no one had ever done before. We parsed news fees. No one had ever done that before. And at the same time, because I was working for a billionaire, you know, we weren't going to run out of money. And so I went to Sports Illustrated and ESPN, and I said, you guys should partner with us because we have all these resources. I'm building a great development team and a great engineering team, and we're not evil big companies that will screw you like, say, Microsoft. We're just little great guys, and I'm a great guy. And after like two years of selling, ESPN agreed to partner with us. So you you approached them. They didn't come to you. We approached them. Mm. Yeah, we approached them and Sports Illustrated. Guess who ran the interactive group at Time, Inc.? Walter Isaacson. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what did he say? He said, now we're doing our own thing. So I said, okay. Pathfinder, yeah. Pathfinder, exactly. So anyway, so what happened is that um, after, like I said, two years of selling and the Internet starting to get going and these other things starting to fall by the wayside, in October of 94, we launched a prototype news sports service called Satchel Sports, named after Satchel Page. Uh, and that it was so good, and it impressed ESPN so much that it accelerated the negotiations. We did it without them. We did it ourselves. And so then we finally got this deal done with them in February or January. I had to convince Paul to guarantee him a bunch of money. And then in April of 1995, the, the NCAA Final Four was in Seattle. It was the year that UCLA won the NCAA tournament um, with the O'Bannon brothers, who were later famous for suing for merchandise rights. But anyway, and so we launched that weekend at the Kingdom in Seattle, and it was an instant hit. It was number one the minute it launched. It was a big deal. We had video highlights up in the Internet in April of 1995. But the whole thing was amazing. And so it was just a huge hit. And from the moment it was a huge hit, it was obvious that we were going to be in bed with the SPN for a long time. And so in short order, we launched a, a deal to do the NBA's website together with the SPN and the NBA, the NFL, NASCAR. And then Disney bought ESPN's parent company, Cap Cities. And once they bought them, we became extremely strategic because Cap Cities had been one of those companies that 
didn't want to spend any money on this stuff. They wanted somebody else to spend the money. So they let us own and operate the service with their brand. Disney thought that was stupid and wanted to do it the other way around. It was like a joint venture or they bought us or whatever. And so once Disney bought them, we spent probably 30 months in various levels of negotiation with Disney, which ended with them buying us. But it took a long time. Can and I, I spent right. a lot of time at Disney. Can we go into some of the, the, the details of this here? Um, you know, I've spoken to people sure. like, like Mark Levy of, of, of Sportsline and also, you know, no, pe- people. Uh, yeah, not Mark. Uh, what's his name? Mike. Mark Mike. Levy. Sorry. Uh, sorry, Mike. Mike I, I yeah, apologize. Sure. Right, yeah. um, but, yeah. uh, you know, p- people, you know, that started at, at Hotwired and Slate and things like that. And so I'm curious about the the idea of, um, the, you know, the web is an always on 24 seven information medium. Do you guys launch with like live sports scores or is that something that you adapt over time? Like I, I'm, I'm so curious. We launched about- with live. We totally launched live. So what we did was in 1993, um, uh, in 1993, we launched, Sorry, in 1993, both Microsoft and other people had done these CD-ROM titles that had this feature where you could connect via a modem and do a, a periodic update of the stats. So they launched things that were kind of like encyclopedias, right? And then you could get an update. So what we did was we licensed the sports ticker feed, which was used then to like scroll scores across stadiums and stuff, right? And it was owned by ESPN, actually. And we licensed it, and we had this genius guy who had a PhD in linguistics who parsed it. And it wasn't designed to be parsed. It was like gobbledygook. He figured out how to parse it all the time. That is, you could, the fee would come by and he could turn it into like a browsable database that said like, you know, today's Friday. Friday, uh, NFL scores, recap, box score, all that. Uh, Friday, MLB, AL, Mariners, right? And we wrote this visual, visual basic prototype to take his server work and display it, and it blew everyone away. And the sports sticker guy said, no one's ever done that before. We didn't even know you could do that. <laughs> so we were really the first guys to ever do it, right? This was like a year and a half before we launched. And so then we really knew we had something when we did that. So, no, this was always on, always real time. The, the April 1st, 1995 version of ESPNSportsZone.com is – in, it's surprisingly similar to the version today. Of course, it's better today in a million ways, right? And it's got tons of video and tons of other great things. But the basic meat and potatoes of the scoreboards and the recaps and the stats is exactly the same. So, right. And so getting more into the weeds about this, uh, from what I've read uh, from articles at the time, um, you know, this is before the era of things like content management systems, but you guys... We wrote our own. You, right, you guys, own. I feel like you guys had to pioneer a lot of that stuff. We wrote everything. Mm-hmm. We literally wrote everything, because not because we wanted to, we had no choice. We wrote a content management system. We wrote an internal publishing system that was basically like a version of Word that ran on a server, right? They let you edit, italicize, format. We had a uh, system for tagging photos from the various wire services. We wrote our own video stuff. We wrote our own ad server. There were no ad servers. We didn't measure the ads, right? Now, there weren't many ads. Literally everything that you need today that a lot of times now you can just get from shareware, we had to write from scratch. And, and what, about, insane. what about the ads, though? Um, so you, you guys are designing the sites for someone like ESPN or eventually abcnews.com and stuff like that. But, and you're designing the site. You're, you're functionally running the site. Are you also doing the ad sales and, and things like that? So what happened is, 
1995, as we were about to become a business, we had no idea what the business model would be. I mean, no one did, right? I'm not saying we didn't. Literally, no one did. No one knew either A, how big the internet was going to be, or B, what form of revenue would eventually accrue to you, if any. So the three choices were you could make money off ads, which seemed unlikely. You could make money off people paying a subscription, which seemed more likely, frankly, back then. Or you could make money off merchandise or other kind of things. And so Paul Allen ordered me to have all three kinds of revenue streams done by September 30th, 1995. So when we launched in April, and this was a web service, there was no AOL version, it was just an internet website, um, we had ads. We, we, had, we sold Gatorade, an ad package, at launch for $30,000 a month. And they said, what do we get for $30,000? And we said, everything. <laughs> the entire site was just a Gatorade banner. <laughs> One big banner after another. Right, because sure. it's, it's not CPM. It's just, yeah, you're just sponsoring the whole thing. Well, it kind of was, but and we didn't measure it, but no one knew, right? So, and then by fall, we had spun up a store to sell merchandise like college jerseys and ESPN stuff. And we had also done two premium services. One was we launched what is now the insider portion of ESPN.com, the portion of the site that you pay 40 or 50 bucks a month for that's premium content. And then it was some AP stuff they wouldn't give away and some video, some, some better photos and some columnists and stuff. It's kind of like what it is now actually. And then we also launched the first fantasy football in the fall of 1995, we had 4,000 people who paid us 40 bucks. So we invented fantasy football on the internet. Uh, that's it's so funny how much that comes up in the sports sites about how like the fantasy was so tied to sports going on the web. But it makes sense because it's it's such it was, a clear, it, easy. It was revenue tiny. Stream. No, no, it, 4,000 people. It was tiny because mm-hmm. we paid, mm-hmm. we charged for it, and we barely worked because it was a really complicated software problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we also. Uh, so we launched all three of those things by September because Paul ordered us to, because he was he didn't really understand he was worried that we wouldn't have any revenue. So we had all, so we built our own e-commerce system, you know everything. A guy left. He he took the password of the server with him and threatened to leave. Still, you know it was terrible, right? But it was fascinating. So we invented all this stuff. So um, you you said that almost as soon as you launch, it's wildly successful. And I think you'll find – I found this quote from an article in 96, sort of amusing, where they say, Sports Zone's numbers are staggering. It averages 7.5 million hits a day. And that sounds small today, but it really would have been staggering for 1996. So like when it launched – it, there was a spark station, which, you know, seemed like a mainframe, right, on the CTO's desk, and that's what it was on. It wasn't in a data room. It wasn't in a server room and some off-site thing. It certainly wasn't on the cloud. There was no cloud. It was on a guy's spark station. And then it got maxed out. We put more RAM in the spark station. We put a second processor in it, and it got maxed out. So we wrote software to load balance between servers in 1995, Okay. Like that would have been a multi-billion-dollar business if we spun it out, right? <laughs> so we had because we had no choice, yeah. right? Uh, so yeah, all that stuff was literally, and our strategy was pretty funny. And both the guy from ESPN, Dick Glover, and I, we would say the same thing all the time. We would just say our strategy is to get out ahead and run like hell. That's all we did. 
How how that's literally all we did. How close um, in partnership were you with with ESPN? Like, are you are you getting are you working with their reporters? Are you getting content from them, and, and vice versa? Are they promoting you? Yeah. So when we launched, we had 150 people working on the site, and they had three. And it wasn't because they were bad guys; it's because they just didn't have any budget, right? So. Then we started sending people there, and they started sending – we called them prisoner exchanges, and they started sending people to Seattle, right? And what happened is as it got more successful, it got people at ESPN more excited about it. But the funniest thing is – so it was a very complicated negotiation because we didn't know what the business was going to be. And so we were guaranteeing a bunch of money, and Paul Allen, even though he was a billionaire, was pissed about it. Why are we guaranteeing all this money? So what – what they, what we gave them was we did all the work, if you will, right, with a few exceptions. We did all the technical work, and the entire reporting staff was in Seattle originally. Later on, it changed, and everything happened in Seattle, unless it was wire stuff that we just parsed and dressed up with headlines. But then what happened is they said that in exchange for guaranteeing us $2.5 million a year, which is what we did for five years, they would promote it with television advertising, which would be worth X. And so we were the first guys to ever do a deal where you got, you know, internet technology in exchange for TV promotion. We started doing that. And they said, here's the number of ads we'll run. Here's where we'll run. Here's the rate card. Here's the discount, blah, blah, blah. So you could do the math and figure out that it was allegedly worth it, right? Then they said, oh, we'll do one more thing. We are starting to do this thing. They had this thing then called 2858. So you know how now when you watch ESPN, the bottom uh, portion of the screen is a scoreboard that scrolls across, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's a horizontal. Uh, right, right. The little, t- ticker. You know, yeah. Right, the ticker. So the ticker then appeared twice an hour at 28 minutes after and 58 minutes after for two minutes, then it went away because people were afraid of cluttering up the screen, which seems laughable now, <laughs> right. right? It's true. So what they said was, oh, guess what we're going to do for you? When we run the 2858s, we're going to put, in addition to the scores that say San Diego 3, Seattle 2, we're going to say HTTP colon backslash backslash ESPNnet.sportzone.com. Go online to see the best or whatever during those two times an hour. And we said, what the fuck is that? And, and Paul said, you should value that at zero. And that single-handedly made the business. So we invented, I should say they, they invented the idea of actual promotion of website URLs. That was the first time it had ever been done anywhere. Was was that concession they gave us in the negotiation, which we decided was worth zero and we're completely wrong about. It was worth a fortune, right? It's always real. We were the first people we were the first people to ever do it. It never and it wasn't an ad, it was during content, right? Mm-hmm. So it was a huge deal, and they invented it. It was their idea. It was just absolutely brilliant. Changed everything. Literally changed everything. Um, and th- that was all them. So, uh, so anyway, yeah, go ahead. So I'm just saying, it's funny how we didn't even know what, how to value it, much less that it was worth a lot. And I was like saying to Paul, "This could be kind of cool," and he was like, "Yeah, but what's it worth? Who knows?" And you know, he was right. You know, <laughs> I, how would you know, right? Mm-hmm. 
Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. Access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you ka-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify transformed ResumeWriters.com from the spaghetti code backend I cobbled together in college to the world-class commerce platform it sits on today. And Shopify can do the same for your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ride. So um, Starwave develops a a bunch of different things. Like there's, like I said, abcnews.com, but then there was also... um, what was uh, you did an NBA? There was a Mister Showbiz, which sort of was like the first, um, you know, entertainment news sort of uh, site yeah. on the web and things like that. Yeah, that's right. And but but was always it was always the ESPN site that was always for you guys the the the, the big Kahuna, right? Our plan was to have a whole bunch of businesses like ESPN.com with different partners. Mister Showbiz, we thought we'd launch on our own, and then someone would partner with us. We'd get a TV show for it. We came very close to doing a deal with Dow Jones for WallStreetJournal.com. Like I would say to the ten yard line, and then it didn't. Go, then it went away. I tried to get CNN to do a deal with us, but they didn't like the fact we were in business with ESPN. I tried to get ABC to do a deal with us, and they didn't. They just were hesitant. And then once Disney bought them, everything kind of changed. And so once Disney bought the company, uh, you know, we were strategic. The guys at Disney were kind of driving the bus on the strategy. This guy Jake Weinbaum, who was a brilliant guy. He and I and Tom Staggs and Kevin Mayer ended up being sort of the kitchen cabinet of Disney's internet strategy. And so even though I didn't work for Disney, um, I was there helping them figure out what to do. So we built in 1997 when Disney owned part of us, but not all of us, uh, or maybe it was, sorry, 1996 when they didn't own any of us yet, we built abcnews.com on spec. We built it on spec like a spec house, and I went to this ABC annual retreat at the Biltmore Hotel in Phoenix 
and I showed it to them. And, and we built it just purely on spec. We had no contract, no handshake, nothing. And we blew them away. They were like, oh, my God. And what's funny is the person who was the most blown away was the president of Disney. who was named Michael Ovitz. He hadn't mm-hmm. been fired yet. Mm-hmm. He came up to me like, oh, my God, this is fabulous. You know? So eventually they did this deal in early 1997 to buy part of us with an avenue to eventually buy the rest of us. Once that happened, our strategy and their strategy kind of became the same strategy, which was to de-emphasize the stuff we were already doing that wasn't sports, get ABC News going, and then eventually build a portal, which we did together called Go.com. Right. So uh, how does – there's this convoluted – you don't have to explain it, but somehow InfoSeek's involved and then – So this is a great story. So what happened is that – so Disney bought three-eighths of Starwave. And some of that money went to Paul Allen and some of it went to the employees, but most of it, most of it went to the company. Some went to Paul, some went to the company. And the company was still losing money, but it was plugging along. And Disney had board control, even though they only had three-eighths of the company. And then they had an option to buy the rest of the company. And the way Paul structured the deal was, in the first two years, the option had a cap. And after that, it was just at, face, at fair market value of whatever the asset was worth which was supposed to worry them because the internet stocks were going up so much, right? And so they were incented to buy it early. So what happened is we were in this state in 1997 and part of 1998. We were kind of like an Iron Curtain country, right? We were like Czechoslovakia or something. We were partly owned by Disney. The employees didn't have any liquidity, but they kind of called the shots. But they couldn't tell us what to do because we had other shareholders. It was kind of a mess. And I was the chairman, so it was kind of a messy job. Like Michael Eisner called me at one time and told me to build an Angels website for the Angels because they owned the Angels. Mm-hmm, and I was like, mm-hmm. well, but you don't want to pay me for it. He goes, no, I just paid to buy the company. And I'm like, well, you don't own the company. I got other <laughs> shareholders. Fuck you. He got all mad. So anyway, so what happened is I kept – and they wanted to build this big portal, and we were doing all this great work on the portal. And I said, look, the problem is you're going to lose all the good guys unless you give them some liquidity because all these other companies have gone public. And so all their competitor – are making money and they aren't, you know, so, and they know what the cap is on buying it. So they're just, they're just going to leave. So they just said, well, we'll just buy the company fine. So they're going to buy the company and it was going to be an okay outcome for everybody. It was going to value Starwave at about $350 million. So then what happened is this guy, Tom Staggs, who later became the COO of all Disney and is a really smart guy. He, we were kind of in talks with all these guys who weren't Yahoo, Excite, InfoSeek, Lycos, CNET, all these guys who were kind of in, also getting in the portal business because it was pretty obvious that Yahoo was the king. Then Google didn't exist yet. Google actually didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So um, what happened is that uh, of all the companies, they liked InfoSeek the best, probably because they were cheapest. The stock was the cheapest. So what Tom Staggs did was he made an offer to Paul Allen to buy his shares out at that capped price of $350 million. And so for about a minute, he owned most of Starwave, but not the employees' shares. So he owned about 85 or 90% of Starwave, but not my stock and not the rest of my employee stock, which was like 400 people. Then he took that asset and traded it for half of InfoSeq. And in between buying it and selling it, he marked it up 3X. So he took the 300 and something million dollars worth of Starwave that he owned, told InfoSeq it was worth a billion, and InfoSeq said, okay, and they bought half of InfoSeq with it. So we, the employees, 
suddenly got a whole bunch of InfoSeq stock that valued our stake at a billion dollars. <laughs> so it was a, it's a, the good news was he bought half of InfoSeq for cheap, if you will, and took us along for the ride. So it was all great. The problem was he then owned not quite half of InfoSeq and couldn't get them to do what he wanted to do. And during that year of screwing around with InfoSeq before they bought the rest of it, it cost them a lot of time because it was really cumbersome. And that's when I left, and a lot of good people left because it was just kind of a disaster. Right, because that so was – great for us, but they should have just bought the whole thing or something because – I mean, I'm glad he did it. I'm going to be wrong. It was wonderful. But he, he ended up not – they had to – everything was a big negotiation, and the InfoSeq guys had figured out that the only way to get them off the dime was to buy all of InfoSeq, which they wanted to do anyway. They wanted to get sold. So right, that was that was the whole go dot com thing and everything, which you know yeah, which took too long. And then what happened is they put Bornstein in charge of it, and there was this thing where Eisner told me he wanted me to run it, and then he denied it, and I was pissed off. And Bornstein didn't even really want to do it; he was pissed off, and it was a mess. It was a classic Disney mess. Um, so so I left, and I, I stayed around consulting for a while, and then I left. And Steve had wanted me to come run marketing for Apple. He went back to Apple. I talked to him a lot about going back to Apple. We were pretty good friends. And this so, is uh, 98, basically. This is 97. 97. Okay. He wants okay. me to come. 97, he goes, come run all of marketing for Apple. And I'm like, I can't. I mean, this thing with Disney, I have an employment contract. I got to get, I kind of knew I had to go through this 18 month process to get it sold. So when I sell it, when we finally sell it, he goes, I go, look, I can't work there full time. I got kids and everything, but I can work there part time. And he goes, great. So he hired me in 98 to be a part-time advisor to him on this executive team. So for six years, from 98 to 04, I commuted there every Monday and Tuesday and spent two whole days doing everything Steve did. Every so, meeting you went to, executive staff meeting, you know, de- design meetings, product meetings, advertising meetings. You know, I, you might need, we might need to do another episode. In fact, we definitely do if you'll be willing um, sure. Because I, I don't want to take up your whole afternoon, um, and also I haven't researched this era enough. But let me ask you just a couple questions about that era of '98 to 2004 Apple. Um, sure. Number one, um, you know, you the history would say, "Oh, Steve comes back to Apple and and turns it all around, and and everything is great." But um, it always occurred to me that you know he was gone it took for a long time. I was going to say, it, it, well, this question specifically because he had been gone for basically a generation of Apple employees. So when when Steve yeah, eleven com- years right. So when Steve comes back, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there were some long timers that were still there from when he was there at the first time. But when he comes back, was there a lot of pushback and politics? And it, it, I couldn't have been that everyone was was on board with everything Steve wanted to do when he came back, right? So when Steve came back, first he consulted for a while, and then they fired Gil Emilio, who was a kind of a bozo. And so then they asked him to be the interim CEO, and the board made the mistake of asking him. And because they asked him, he said, I'll only do it under these conditions. So the first condition was, <laughs> he said, the first condition was, he said, get rid of the board. This board sucks. And he handpicked a new board. The second condition was, he said, I get to fire anybody I want. And so when I got there, he said to me, look, here's my job at Apple. Half the people here are good. Half the people are bozos. I have to keep enough of the good ones and get rid of the bozos as fast as I can. So, but it was easier than you think because the head of hardware and the head of software and the head of legal were all from Next. So even though Apple bought Next, really Next kind of bought Apple because Avi Tavanian had been at Next forever. John Rubenstein had been the head of hardware at Next. Those guys 
came to Apple actually before Steve came back. They came back as soon as Next bought got bought by Apple. And so he had people, and Sina Tamadin, who ran all the apps group, also worked at Next. And so when I, when, when I got there, of the nine people in the executive staff meeting, five of us had worked at Next, on the executive staff at Next. So that's why it was easier for him than you might have think, because it was like, it's like going on a date with your old girlfriend. You already know what she wants for dinner. You know, you know everything. Right? Well, you know, we're all buddies. It's like a coup almost. <laughs> you guys took over absolutely. Apple. Yeah. Absolutely a coup. It was kind of by accident. So what happened is when um, Apple bought Next and Emilio was in charge, Avi was at Next, and then Steve kind of arranged for Rubenstein to go back to Apple. And so he had two of his trusted guys running hardware and software, the two most important jobs, right? And so then – he heard from them what a bozo Emilio was. You know, he fell asleep in his own staff meeting, was spending millions of dollars building a new bathroom for his office, you know, just stupid stuff. Right? So anyway, you kind of knew what was going to happen. Right? But when he came back, what was easier about it was that he had um, people he already kind of got as opposed to people he didn't trust in key positions. So, and then he had this guy, the, the, one of the unsung heroes of the Apple turnaround is the CFO, Fred Anderson. Fred Anderson was a great guy who Steve hadn't met before, but Steve, they loved each other. The guy was a great guy. He, he was key to running all the stuff Steve didn't want to be bothered with. Um, uh, and he did a great job. It's a long story, obviously, yeah. but that, you know, that's one of the things people don't really realize is that he had two of his, three of his trusted lieutenants he'd worked with the next so he knew them well. When I when I research this era more, maybe you'll you'll come back. But uh, one other question about that era relates to you know. So this is this legendary turnaround of a company that's you know on the brink of of death, and then now is you know the greatest success of our modern tech era. How much of that, when you're there in this era, is it because the web was happening? It's blowing a hole in the tech industry wide open and so is 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 that era is there almost like there's a space created that apple can um sort of find its niche and start to do things like this hub strategy and things like that was was how much do you think was that era and the web happening allowing apple to have that breathing room to eventually resuscitate itself and succeed well it's a good question i think it helped because if you think about it, once the Internet got popular in 95, 96, 97, 98, you know, you, you, if you were observant, even if you didn't have any research, you'd figure out that, geez, I'm spending a lot of my time just looking at a web browser and doing email, right? Not using Word or Excel or PowerPoint or whatever or Adobe Illustrator or something, right, or Quicken. You know, I'm spending – if you did a time and motion study, right – you were spending more than half your day just looking at the browser and your email, right, or chat or whatever. So if you're doing that, it doesn't really matter what you're doing it on, right? The whole advantage of Windows, thousands of applications, most of which were business-oriented applications or games, was kind of irrelevant, right? So that helped, but it wouldn't have mattered if Apple hadn't built good stuff, right? And even so, you know, their market share of PCs was like 2%. And then maybe it got to 4%. And I remember I had this conversation with Steve one time where I was like, look, we're so small that we could double in sales and probably people wouldn't even notice, right? Because our, I said it's kind of an advantage because our share is so small, right? And it was really small. I mean, if PC sold max were maybe a couple points and maybe they doubled it at some point. And then – then, you know, the big thing is the iPod, the iPod, right? I mean, the iPod is the thing that really changed Apple because people had permission 
to buy an Apple product without having to give up a Windows, right? Right. And that was a really big deal, even though it was originally a Mac-only product. That was a really big deal. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because remember, originally when you read those articles about the iPod launch, it's like, well, uh, and even I think Steve says this, well, this is going to encourage people to buy Macs. Uh, No, no, it was a big fight. There were two things about it. One was that it required FireWire. There was no USB 2.0 yet. And because it required FireWire, all Macs had FireWire and some PCs had it. Sony PCs had it. And then other PCs only had it if you got an external card and installed it. So it was very difficult to use an iPod on Windows until USB 2.0, which was like three years later. So at first, it was for Macs and geeks, basically, right? Uh, unless someone bought it for you and loaded it up mm-hmm. for you. Because remember, what you were doing was there was no store. So for the first three years of the iPod until late 2003, the only way you could use it, or two years, let's say, was to take your own music, copy it off CDs, Ill- legally or illegally, get music, and then sideload it from iTunes onto your iPod, right? That's the only way you could do it. There's no store. Right. So that's, it seems pretty hard today. It didn't seem that hard then, but it seems pretty hard, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that was in the days when people made mix CDs, Rip, Mix, Burn. Apple had an ad campaign before the iPod yep, called Rip, yep, Mix, Burn, yep. where you would use iTunes to, you know, um, uh, to make CDs. So anyway, but eventually it really worked. You know, iPod sales went up every quarter forever and ever and ever and ever, right? Uh, even when it, from Mac only to Mac plus PC to then when iTunes shipped and it was and the USB 2.0 shipped to the mini to the nano, you know, it kept getting better and better and better. Well, so are you, wit- are you there to witness when they stop becoming just a Mac only company and they realize that this is, they're, sure. they're an everything sure. company? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, I was there. So I was there until late 2003 when Steve got sick. We launched the iPod two weeks after 9-11, 2001. And it started to sell better. And then the mini made it sell a lot better. And then USB 2.0 in the store made it sell even better. People forget about the mini. They always talk about the nano. They forget about the mini. The mini was the first... Before the mini, people thought the key to the iPod was capacity, 5, 10, 20 gig, and that people who used it had giant music libraries like I did. But the mini came in 2 and 4 gigabytes, had a little tiny hard disk in it, not a, not a flash drive, but it was cheaper and cuter. And it, Steve almost canceled it twice, but it was a huge hit. So when that happened, you could kind of tell that the iPod was going to be a cultural phenomenon, not just a geek device. Right? And then... The store happened, and then the Nano, and it's everything else. Right? iTunes for Windows was a really big deal, which Steve said he would never do. <laughs> and then he said, first he said he would never do it, and then he said, this is the best app on Windows. <laughs> well, so, he also didn't want to do an app store for the iPhone, too. But um, listen, yeah, I, we, 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 again, we might have to come back and, and, and circle back yeah, to this sure. whole era. So um, just uh, two two more questions, and then and I've taken up more of your time than I already promised. Um Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. 
With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com slash men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com slash men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again, and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. Uh, you've worked uh, with you know, you, 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 more than most people, you know, you've worked under Bill Gates, you've worked under Steve Jobs, you've worked with Rob Glazer for years. Um, Rob's been on the show. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if um, this is... I, yeah, I'm I still so, work with Rob. Right, right, right. So I, I, I'm yeah. wondering, and this is my worst sort of uh, softball magazine style question, but I'm wondering if there's one thing that you see in good entrepreneurs, like if there's one sort of like skill set or, or trade or anything like that about truly great entrepreneurs since you've worked with so many. It's it's hard to say. Like there's a great quote in the uh, Brent Schlender book by Bill Gates where he goes, he goes, Brent, this book should be called the Don't Try This at Home book. He said plenty of people have the asshole part down, not so many have the genius part down, right? <laughs> so, which I think is a great quote because mm-hmm, Steve mm-hmm. Jobs was a genius. Bill Gates wouldn't tell you that, but he's a genius, mm-hmm. and most people aren't. And so most entrepreneurs have delusions of grandeur and think they're geniuses, right? And most of them aren't. And so you'll probably get feedback along the way that tells you if you are kind of genius-like or not in some way, right? Now, the other thing about people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs is they're very persistent. And so they have skills that most people don't have. One of them is persistence. Two is and I don't know if this is true for everybody, it's certainly true for Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, they really, really, really like to work. Did Steve Jobs have a lot of hobbies? I don't think so. Vegetable garden, you know? He, he liked to work. He, on Saturday afternoon, he was doing email at home, right? Mm-hmm. He liked to work. So 
you know, people think they like to work, but most people don't like to work that much. They like to goof off, right? <laughs> so, you know, that's fine, but then you're not going to be like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, right? And then the other thing is, you know, really persistent people do have a little bit, especially when they're young, a little bit of a capacity for self-delusion, right? Where they think something's dumb when it's not, and they think something's great when it's not, and they think other people's stuff isn't any good, even if it is. And that's what keeps them going, because it's easy to talk yourself out of anything, right? I mean, it really is. And so there's this weird thing where you have to know exactly what your competition is up to, and at the same time, think that there's no way they're as good at this stuff as you are. Right, if that makes any sense, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and, and so um, uh, that's a thing that I would certainly say both Bill Gates and you know Bill Gates they have announced windows at the Windows on the World window a restaurant in New York City in the World Trade Center in 1983. Okay, it didn't even ship till late '85, and it was a horrible <laughs> product. Version one, but it, was just, it didn't do anything. You could play reverse eye, like it didn't do anything. So. But he thought it was great, right? He told you it was great. So that's sort of self-delusion. I mean, it's not like Donald Trump, but you do kind of believe in your own stuff, right? Same. Steve would always say this stuff was, he'd say, oh, you were working on that in the lab, and he hadn't even thought about it until you mentioned it, right? He, just, he was just bullshitting you, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, the, the ability to have credible BS, credible meaning you can't dispute it and it will eventually come true, is very important. That's not like Trump, where Trump just lies like a little kid, right? He's like, oh, yeah, I didn't do that when he did, and you can prove it, and, you know. So it's a weird thing, but most great entrepreneurs have it, right? The ability to, like, you know, get that something could be done, when it could be done, so might as well pretend it's done already, as opposed to just making it up, like my daddy's a fireman or something. Well, and, of course, I, you can't be a genius. I mean, both Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are geniuses in different ways. Steve Jobs loved the aesthetics of things. When I worked at Next with him, we'd go for a walk at lunchtime and we'd just walk around the parking lot critiquing cars. We'd just walk around going, ugly, 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 pretty, pretty, ugly, can't, now this doesn't work, I don't like the butt, you know, for like an hour. It was like girl watching. We'd just do it for cars, right? Well, and you've you've sat mm-hmm. in on those those breakfast meetings with, with uh, Steve and, and Johnny Ive and, and, and <laughs> these great design well, I used to go, I used to go in the lab with Johnny Ive and Steve after lunch on Mondays. I'd go to Steve's staff meeting. I'd get a sandwich. And I, he and I, before we met with Avi and his team to look, go over Mac OS 10, we'd go in the lab and hang out with Johnny. And they would go over, and I was really sleepy. I had to take a 6 a.m. flight every Monday morning to go to Apple. So I was getting up at 4.30, wolfing down coffee, going to the Seattle airport, flying to the San Jose airport, driving to Apple, sitting through a three-hour staff meeting, and then following Steve around breathlessly. And I was dying. By 1.30, I was in a closed hot windowless room searching for caffeine and Johnny and Steve will be talking about plastic extrusion. <laughs> Diet. So we go over the iMac and the curve and the angle and the joint and the miter and all this crap. And then they'd go, they'd be totally lost. And then they'd look at me and they'd go, what do you think? And I'd go, ship it. You know, sure. <laughs> Where's the Coke machine? <laughs> so yeah, they were really into it. I mean, like really into it. Okay, final question, and then I'm going to let you go. You've been too generous already. Um, uh, people, especially in Seattle, tend to get successful and by a sports team. Uh, you bought a, a sport. Do you, do you still? Yeah, the Professional Bowlers Association. Right? Uh, and, yeah. and you still, you and, and your partners still own that? 
Rob and I do. We own it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I guess you're you're heavy. You're a serious bowler, or just uh, just a fan? Like uh, you, you know, even people that buy NFL team or NBA teams, you know, can't necessarily play basketball. Uh, I'm not that huge of a bowling fan. I we thought, and we still think it. That if you own the whole thing, mm. you get to do things you can't otherwise do. That was really the thesis behind bowl, buying mm-hmm. the bowling. Plus, it wasn't very expensive. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's that was the thesis. Um, but yeah, I'm a big sports fan, and I have, you know. Um, if I could afford it, I would have bought a bigger team. But no, it's fun. It's really fun. Um, All right, uh, Mike Slade, uh, thank you so much. And um, I, I, if you'd be willing, I will get in touch again, and we'll do another more Apple-centric episode possibly. But um, thanks for coming on the, the podcast and, and remembering all that for You bet. No problem. My pleasure. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, And my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.